Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. My brand new book, Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth, is now available. So much more than a book, this is a guide that allows me to hold your hand through your birth preparation journey. With over a decade of experience and knowledge packed in to ensure you really are empowered in the way you deserve to achieve a positive birth, regardless of the twists and turns that crop up. Make sure that you get your hands on Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth Book now and are empowered to have the birth experience that you deserve. Hello, I'm Pip and welcome to the Midwife Pip podcast, the home of expert information and real chats on all things pregnancy, birth and beyond. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 15% off my online courses at midwifepip.com using the code PODCAST15. Vaginal birth after caesarean section, or VBAC, is the term used when a woman gives birth vaginally, having had a caesarean birth in the past. There are lots of considerations to look into when making the decision between a VBAC or an elective repeat caesarean birth. And this week's episode is here to assist you in unpicking the evidence and supporting you to plan a positive birth by whichever means following a previous cesarean. This week, I'm joined by fellow midwife, Angie Willis, better known on Instagram as the eco midwife. I am really excited to chat with Angie about this topic, as I know from working with her in the NHS, this is an area she is particularly passionate about. We are also joined by Angie's littlest family member, Baby Summer. So any squeaks are Little Summer's way of joining in today. Now, Angie, I say today, but actually it's not today. It's a quarter past eight now on a Wednesday evening. So thank you for joining me out of hours in true mum style to talk about this important subject. That's okay. Honestly, it's just madness, isn't it? With like having a baby, you just... You just have to go with the flow, don't you, with a lot of things. <laughs> and actually, you're at the stage now where it could be any time of day anyway, I suppose. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll we should attend time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to sign up to a three o'clock in the morning recording. I'm I'm sorry. But but we'll go with the quarter past eight. <laughs> so thank um, you for coming on, because I know that feedback is something that you've personally done a lot of research into. So I'm really excited to pick your brains and I appreciate you've just had a baby. So it may not feel like your brains are as fresh as they were when you originally did research into this, but I know you'll be able to share such interesting stuff with perhaps mums listening that are unsure about their options. It all feels a little bit, a little bit strange and a little bit scary and a little bit overwhelming. So I wonder if you could start, Angie, by just sharing with us some of those kind of overarching statistics for the success rate for a VBAC, depending on how many cesareans a woman's had before. 
Yeah, so it totally depends on how many cesareans you have and also place of birth can impact on uh, sort of the cesarean, but also the reason for the cesarean before. So when considering your options, you do want to be looking at what happened previously in your previous birth. How long ago did it happen? Um, how do you feel about that previous birth? Because all those things will also help you make those sort of decisions moving forward. Um, and having those conversations with your community midwives, having those conversations with your obstetricians, asking maybe for your notes from a previous pregnancy so that that way you can have a look through um, and having that conversation as well with your birthing partners, those who are going to be supporting you, whether you go for a repeat elective cesarean birth or whether you choose a VBAC, having those conversations openly from start to finish. And so the statistics show that um, for one previous cesarean birth, you have around about a 75% chance of having another vaginal birth. Um, so about one in four will have another cesarean birth um, who are attempting a vaginal birth, but have a cesarean um, with one previous cesarean birth. And if you're having two, then it's around about a sort of 60 to 70% sort of success rate. Now, the research on two or more cesareans has been done on women mostly who have had previous vaginal births as well. So we do have to take that into consideration when we look at the stats. But those statistics also vary by trust. So some trusts have a much higher success of full VBAC rate. Other trusts will have a much lower successful VBAC rate. And you have to have a look at everything that surrounds those VBAC rates before you can consider exactly what goes into those statistics, for example. Um, but you also then also have to look into what's happened in that pregnancy, what position is that baby in, what's going on in that uterus. Are these women being induced? Are these women not being induced? So that also impacts your success rate with a vaginal birth after a previous cesarean section, for example. So there's lots more to it than just a 75% chance. It's looking at that whole picture in itself. So true, isn't it? We aren't statistics. You know, we are individual people with individual circumstance and, and we're two individual or three individual people when it comes to pregnancy, which just makes things even more interesting. But I guess sometimes a little bit more complicated, I suppose, to comprehend and make decisions on. Now, are there any specific individual kind of considerations that may increase or decrease this rate? I know you mentioned place of birth there and having had a previous vaginal birth and induction of labor. Are they kind of things that we need to think about or, or what else is there that women can think, well, I've got this or I've got this that may alter that sort of 75% that we see bound about a lot? Yeah, so we need to look at lots of different things. So firstly, what was the previous cesarean birth for? So some of the research has actually shown that if it was for a planned cesarean risk, so like breach, for example, they actually have a much more successful VBAC rate than someone who maybe had a cesarean for um, slow progress, who was augmented. Now, of course, we've got to consider why they were augmented in the first place. You know, was it the baby was in a funny position? In which case, we've got to think that this is a different baby at a different time, potentially in a different, you know, sort of position. So it's not necessarily what happened previously, but there are some things previously that mean that your success rate is much greater, like, for example, having had that elective breach. Um, there are also other things to look for. So did you have a lower segment cesarean birth? So that's one of the things that most obstetricians will counsel you on, is that if you've had a lower segment cesarean birth, then you are more likely to have a successful feedback and also a much lower chance of uterine rupture compared to say a classical or a J or a T incision for example so they're all things that 
most providers will say we don't recommend having a VBAC for those things. And most would have been told that. Sorry, Angie. Most would have been told would have been told that after their cesarean section that had any complications, wouldn't they? So most women kind of know whether they whether they have got a just standard lower segment or some complications that would perhaps contraindicate a successful VBAC. Yeah, they should have. And that that's fairly standard, particularly in the last decade, I would suggest that they should have on the day after been reviewed by the doctors on the ward round, given lots of different advice, but certainly mentioned where the incision was. Um, gestation can have an impact. So when they've looked at uterine ruptures, now bearing in mind a lot of the research comes from uterine ruptures and not actually like the whole, you know, case control, thousands and thousands of women were just looking at just the ones that have had uterine ruptures. Women who are above term plus 10 have a slightly higher risk than women below term plus 10. Now this is most significant when you're thinking about induction of labor as well i was going to say are they the ones being induced (laughs) and this is it is it the induction that's causing this or is it the gestation you know the bigger uterus putting more um sort of strain on the uterus itself we don't know um again sort of the the evidence on it is limited because you haven't looked at hundreds of thousands of women you've just looked at a handful of uterine rupture cases which are in a small minority anyway so it's difficult to say if they're sort of impacted. Length between pregnancies has an impact. So um, if you haven't yet had another pregnancy and you've had a previous cesarean birth, the recommendation is that you should be waiting at least 12 months, if not 18 months is the most ideal optimum time before conceiving another baby. And the idea of that is so that the uterus fully um, heals because of course there's lots of different layers to the uterus it's a big muscle and of course the longer that you can give it to heal and recover the stronger in theory it should be therefore reducing your chance of a uterine rupture or any other complications that may happen in a future pregnancy so um, it will hopefully help to reduce that risk if you can have at least a 12 to 18 month interval now even then there are some women who go on to have a successful VBAC with less than a 12 month gap but it's just being aware that statistics obviously show that the longer that you can wait, the more um, chance of a VBAT, the less chance of a uterine rupture in a future pregnancy. Um, and multiple pregnancy isn't contraindicated in a VBAC. So if you went on to have a twin pregnancy, but you've got to look at the considerations around that twin pregnancy rather than anything else um, as to whether it would be um, safe, whether it would be advised, you know, it depends on what's going on with that twin pregnancy itself. Um, because you've also got to think the uterus is much bigger in a twin pregnancy than it is in a singleton pregnancy, for example. Um, And yes, you're right, induction of labour has a huge impact. So the RCOG, so that's the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, they're the ones who publish the um, evidence and the um, guidelines for the UK. Um, And then it's up to units to take those on board or to say, actually, we're going to do something different. They put a statistic together that's about one in a 200 chance of a uterine rupture when you're trying for a vaginal birth after cesarean section. Now, that encompasses lots of different things. That's a very generic figure. okay? and when you look at lots of the research, some of the research papers actually show it's as low as, say, one in a thousand. So actually, it can be much, much lower, particularly if you've only had one previous cesarean birth. If you've had an 18 month interval, you know, you're under term plus 10, you're in spontaneous labor, you'll probably look at a much lower chance than the one in 200. But when we look at induction of labor, those statistics are far greater. 
So with oxytocin, the oxytocin hormone drip, it's about one in a hundred. So it's quite significantly higher at the chance of a uterine rupture and therefore the chance of a successful VBAC is much lower as a result. With induction with misoprostol or prostaglandins, it's anywhere between about 1 in 50 to about 1 in 75. So a lot of the units in the UK do not use these as a result. I mean, misoprostol for induction and labour isn't used in the UK anymore anyway because yeah, of super old school <laughs> how it works on the uterus. But some countries do across the world, and we do need to consider that when we're thinking about that. And even a Foley's catheter has about a 0.9% chance of a uterine rupture. So it's about 1 in 110 to about 112 women. Um, but it's much lower than prostaglandins when we're thinking about ripening the cervix for induction of labour, trying to get the cervix favourable to be able to break quarters and think about induction there. So you've got to look at that whole picture when you're thinking about the chances of uterine rupture versus the chances of a successful feedback and other things that go on with that. That's really useful because I think induction is something that causes anxiety amongst women in pregnancy regardless. And so when they've then got that understanding that they've got a scar there, that definitely I think increases that, that anxiety. And you mentioned there a few times, uterine rupture. So if anyone listening thinking, what on earth is that? Essentially, that's where the, the previous cesarean scar starts to open and come apart. That's what we call a, a, call a rupture. If anyone Because th- it sounds sounds very drastic, doesn't it? Rupture. It's quite, so sometimes it's quite nice to understand what it actually means. And um, so it's reassuring to understand for women listening that have had a previous cesarean and are having conversations about or exploring the idea of induction of labor, that actually it's done in a different way. Um, and I think that's really, really useful. So actually we're taking into, into consideration this risk factor and doing something to try and mitigate it, which is quite reassuring. And the other thing that we've got to consider is actually, so uterine ruptures, the, the evidence that came out last year, actually showed that uterine ruptures across the world have significantly increased, particularly on women who have not had cesareans before. Mm. And this is on unscarred uteruses. And the chance outside of a previous cesarean birth, so that's anybody walking in on their first pregnancy, those who haven't had any sort of um, uterine surgery before, the chance of that is one to two per 10,000 chance. So yes, it's lower, but it's still there. And we've seen that it's increased over the years. Um, particularly on unscarred uteruses because of induction of labours, because even in, you know, a straightforward uterus, no previous scarring, oxytocin does increase that chance slightly, but also obstructed labour also increases the chance of a uterine rupture itself, which again can happen on someone who hasn't had um, a cesarean in the past. The great thing about that research that came out, though, is it showed that whilst they are increasing globally amongst the world, actually the management and the mortality for both mums and babies has dropped significantly because our management of detecting, diagnosing, intervening when there are signs and symptoms of uterine rupture, that's improved much better. And so as a result, mums and babies are a lot safer as a result of a uterine rupture. And that's because of the guidelines that we put in place, because of the ways that we try and keep mums and babies safe, the ways that we counsel them um, and that early intervention if things pop up. So you know, there's lots of positive things that are appearing from the research that we're seeing. That's really, really interesting, isn't it? And really reassuring to know. Now we know, Angie, as midwives, that if we are caring for someone who has got a scar in their uterus, they've had a previous cesarean section, we've got little eagle eyes making sure there are none of those early signs or symptoms that may indicate a rupture. 
Now, one of the things that tends to get recommended to most women, if not all, uh, who are having a VBAC is continuous electronic fetal monitoring. Will you enlighten us on the evidence surrounding this and in relation to VBAC and safety? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, so the... Starting point is that there's not a huge amount of evidence and the evidence that we've got so far focuses again on those cases that had a uterine rupture. They don't look at the overarching hundreds of thousands of women a day having VBACs across the world. You know, they don't look at that. So when we look at the research, we are looking at the risk elements. We are looking at the poor outcomes, the uterine ruptures. We're not looking at all the women across the world. It's also worth noting that continuous monitoring does come with risks and benefits in itself and that continuous monitoring for anybody, you know, whether you're low risk, high risk, does increase the chance of a cesarean birth by 10%. So we do need to consider that it reduces your mobility. There's lots of other things. It's not a negative in any ways. It's there for those who need it. It's there to try and intervene in early circumstances. And for some women, it can be absolutely the right choice. Um, and it's looking at, again, that full sort of picture. Now, the evidence that came out from the uterine rupture cases with continuous monitoring shows that continuous monitoring can detect abnormal changes in baby's heart rate in around about 60 to 70% of all uterine rupture cases. Okay, so this isn't looking at VBACs overall, this is looking at uterine rupture cases. That still means that in about 30% of women who are having a uterine rupture, this is the CTG, the continuous fetal monitoring was still normal. Mm. So essentially, if you look at the one in 200 chance from the RCOG, if we take that figure, you would have to monitor a thousand women, okay, and you would have about three out of that thousand that would have abnormal CTGs that would detect the uterine rupture. That still means that two still wouldn't have any abnormal changes on their CTG. And it means that essentially you're going to be monitoring about 997 women inappropriately who would have otherwise gone on to have a vaginal birth, you know, who wouldn't have a uterine rupture. And of course, you've got to take that into consideration. But again, you've got to look at that full clinical picture. You know, what's happening with those contractions, those surges? Is there meconium there? How long's the labour been going on for? Is there any other risk factors within that pregnancy? And all the research that looks at place of birth finds that if women have got multiple risk factors, they are much more likely to have adverse outcomes having had a previous cesarean birth, even without a uterine rupture. So it's looking at that full clinical picture with your obstetric history with your pregnancy history with your medical history what's going on on admission from your midwife in terms of the color of the waters everything else that's going on when you're considering whether or not continuous monitoring is the right choice for you or whether intermittent auscultation is a potential option now a lot of the studies haven't looked at intermittent auscultation and for anybody wondering what on earth that is 
Intermittent auscultation is the alternative to continuous monitoring. So continuous monitoring is where you have the monitors on continuously. It prints out a graph, looks at lots of different things um, that I won't go into on this podcast because it would take forever in the day. <laughs> but you would love to. I know you'd love to. I would to. love to. Yeah, I would love to. Absolutely. I could talk about continuous monitoring forever in a day uh, because in the right circumstances, it's brilliant. And they really do help to save babies' lives. However, it is overused. And it can cause lots of issues in lots of other different ways. But intermittent auscultation is using a handheld Doppler. Um, and in the UK, we listen in every 15 minutes in the first part of your labour. So from the point of established labour with established contractions all the way to the point of pushing. And then when it comes to the second stage, the pushing stage, then we'd listen in every five minutes. Now, we haven't got any randomised control trials. We haven't got any evidence or research that looks at specifically those women having a VBAC with intermittent auscultation. So therefore, we haven't got any evidence at this moment in time to say whether it's safe or not safe. But when you look at those who are having home births, those who are having birth centre births where there isn't continuous monitors, we know that the VBAC success rates are much greater and that actually the detection of uterine rupture is no different and the safety outcomes are no different at this moment in time. But we need far more studies. We need far more research to say if it is or isn't safe. And the most interesting thing about that is when I was writing my master's on VBAC in 2019, the NICE guidelines, because of the lack of evidence on continuous monitoring and VBAC, um, actually suggested that it's up to women to decide what's right for them. And two weeks later, because lots of obstetricians were up in arms that we can't just let women decide and what happens if a uterine rupture happens and we haven't offered or advised continuous monitoring, as a result, there was a big change to make the NICE guidelines say we now need to offer continuous monitoring and take into consideration the rest of the clinical history when also discussing whether we need to advise continuous monitoring, depending on what else is going on in that individual woman themselves and to individualise care. Um, so it was it was retracted and within two weeks, the offer for continuous monitoring was then put back into the NICE guidelines with feedback, which was a really interesting thing because it just highlights there isn't enough evidence to suggest that we should be doing continuous monitoring. Mm -hmm. But similarly, there's not enough evidence to say what's the right alternative and if so, where do we draw the line? What's the safest thing? Um, we don't want uterine ruptures, you know, and that's why we've got so safe over time because we put in so many guidelines. Um, but it's not the right choice for women, and we need to we need to factor that in when considering place of birth and choice of birth and everything else. And that's, I think, a point that's just worth really highlighting because in the day of Google searches and social media, and of course, social media is brilliant for lots and lots of things it can often seem very simplified. And there's often a lot of negativity I find towards birth intervention and things like continuous monitoring. And that can be quite dangerous because you might think, well, this person on social media, for example, had a previous cesarean section is now having a home birth without any monitoring. And for them, that might be a really well-rounded, balanced, informed decision that's appropriate and feels safe to them. And that's, that's great. They've made an informed choice that suits them. But for you, you might have like five or six other risk factors that actually mean your chance of uterine rupture is slightly higher. And that's where it's so important. We have that in-depth, individualized kind of care plan and conversation, isn't it? It's, it's just not as simple as a one-size-fits-all approach. 
Absolutely. And this is where actually talking through your previous birth and getting on board with a trusted midwife or your trusted obstetrician, depending on where you're birthing in the country or the world, for example, and going through quite an in-depth, complex care plan to say, well, if everything's going well on, on, on you know, day A, and this is happening, this is what I'd like my birth to look like. But if, say, meconium came up, if I had suddenly lots of frequent, you know, contractions and then suddenly they all stopped, then what are we going to do? You know, actually, that could be a sign of a uterine rupture. Do we then consider that would be a good chance to convert to continuous monitoring, for example? And if you can do this in the antenatal period with all the different aspects, you're going to go in with a lot more control. You're going to be feeling informed. You're making these decisions at a time where you don't have to be, you know, in your zone, in labour and birth, where you can be thinking, I don't feel like I've got lots of people pressuring me at this stage. You can be making these informed decisions during your pregnancy at a time that is calm and more relaxed, where you can go away and think, well, if meconium pops up, if I go overdue, what am I going to do? You know, if this happens, if that happens, where am I going to feel safest? What am I going to do in each scenario? And then this way, it's not a big shock when it happens either, because we've discussed these things. And this is where I'm happy for intervention or not happy for intervention. And that will depend on you because everyone is different. But at least you've had those conversations antenatally, which, again, improves safety, but it also improves that positive birth chance for you as well. Doesn't it? Even if it ends up in a unplanned cesarean section, the fact that you've had that empowered experience. And I, I always encourage women, and I'm sure you're the same, regardless of previous cesarean or not, to plan for what a cesarean birth will look like for them. Because yeah. we know that, you know, that the rates are, I mean, it was one in four. I'd argue it's probably higher now isn't it depending on where you're birthing um so the chances of having a cesarean are there for everybody whether you've had a previous one or not so actually planning for both options a vaginal birth and a, and a cesarean is quite sensible really in improving our positive birth kind of outcomes i think and reducing trauma i think the other thing to consider with that as well um and we won't go into the reasons why cesarean births have increased but women still have choices in cesarean births and I don't think women always know about that yes and yeah. you know a cesarean can be just as as positive and empowering as a vaginal birth you know it depends on the situation the scenario what's happening you know whether the woman's in control able to make that decision but there are so many things that are available to you in a cesarean birth that can make your experience so wonderful and having supported my own friends through their planned cesareans like it's just it's wonderful it's a lovely thing to do but knowing your choices again ahead of time is so important for that. So important. And I think we're starting to lift the lid, aren't we, on the concept of gentle cesarean birth and a, and a cesarean birth being a birth, not a surgical procedure. And I think that changes the game a little bit. So, yeah, definitely exploring what that will look like for you if, you know, you peel on a stick and imagine this mood lighting and music for your birth, then brilliant. Have that in a vaginal or a cesarean birth. It's so, so adaptable. Um, so that's a really lovely, really lovely tip. Thank you. Now we mentioned a little bit home birth and birth centre birth. Now, typically for most women in most trusts, if you've had a previous cesarean, you would usually be advised or recommended to be on a labour ward or a delivery suite or a consultant-led unit. What is the evidence? Is there any evidence? Oh, look at little Summer. Oh, she's gorgeous. She's been so good as well. So good. Um, but what is the evidence around that? Is there any? So again, the research studies are small. 
Um, the research studies that the RCOG use are um, from Germany, from Amish communities for sort of home birth and place of birth, um, and also a data review as well in America that was taking place in 2015. Now, since the RCOG guidelines have updated, there's been another study published in Canada about home birth as well. So there's quite a few studies out there starting to build on that evidence. So women who are planning a home birth, who have a home birth after cesarean section, so HVBAC is what it often looks like on paper when you're looking at sort of the um, annotations, they have a much higher success rate of having a vaginal birth. So they have a much lower interventional rate um, and anywhere up to about 87% success rate of a VBAC um, at home, probably because labour goes more swimmingly, you know, you've got your oxytocin flowing, you're more comfortable um, and everything along those lines. But they do find that the transfer rate is usually double that of first time mums. So for those who are, are planning or having a vaginal birth after cesarean section, the transfer rates are, are a lot higher. Now, we haven't got a UK study, so we can't base it on UK studies. Um, but they found that in the uh, Coxeter one in 2015, that it was about 18 percent transfer rate compared to 7% of women who hadn't had a previous cesarean section. So it was double for them. The only thing that they did find in their study, though, is that women who have got multiple risk factors are far greater and far higher chance of having mortality and morbidity um, for them and their baby. So they were much more likely to have things like transfusions. Their babies were more likely to enter neonatal units taking into consider the other factors on top of the cesarean birth. Now, what was really positive is in that, that study, they showed that there were two uterine ruptures, um, but both were handled really well and absolutely babies were discharged within a few days and okay. And sadly, the ones who um, had died within this study, they'd been complicated by other additional factors. So it was preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, there was a twin birth, there was a breech birth for head entrapment. So it was the other factors within this study that showed that rather than just the previous cesarean birth. And it's worth taking that into consideration when thinking about things. The Canadian study had no uterine ruptures. They had no mortalities, no morbidities. They had really good outcomes in the home birth that they were doing attended by community midwives. Um, and that was quite a big study on about 4,000 women. So overall, what they look at is they look at if things were to happen in terms of a uterine rupture, in terms of everything else, could you be in a theatre within 30 minutes? And so that tends to be the recommendations that they look at. And that's why most places will say that we'd recommend that you birth into an obstetric unit or if you're lucky and some units do offer this so it's always worth asking if you've got a co-located birth center so that's a birth center that's in the same hospital as the obstetric unit so usually either on the same floor or a couple of floors down but in the same building where you could be put onto a bed and taken to theater or have obstetric colleagues come and see you very quickly have continuous monitoring etc um, if you could access theatres within 30 minutes, that reduces the chance of mortality and morbidity for you and your baby. So it reduces the chance of a neonatal death. It reduces the chance of a stillbirth, which are possibilities with uterine rupture, particularly if it's not detected in time, if it's a very rapid one. Um, when a uterine rupture happens, essentially it's stopping the blood flow to your baby because there'll be less blood flow to your baby. So we're thinking about time critical at that stage. 
but we're also thinking about your blood loss as well. And of course, the quicker that you can have a cesarean birth, the quicker that surgery can happen, the higher the chance of survival for you both, the the lower the chance of long-term complications from that as well for you both. So that's why they recommend a half an hour transfer time between diagnosis of the uterine rupture to having your baby in your arms so that you've got that time. And so that's why in the UK, it's not recommended to birth outside of an obstetric unit. But again, it's choice and it's about free will and it's about making that individualized choice for you. And it depends on where you live. You know, it depends on your ambulance waiting times. It depends on whether you've got supportive community midwives on board. It depends on lots of different factors that you want to consider and where you are going to feel comfortable in having your baby, most of all. So it's taking into consideration all those different factors when you're looking into it. And if you want any more sort of looking into the research, the evidence so that it helps you make your choice, the RCOG guidelines, the Green Top guideline, if you look down to the bottom at all the references, you'll be able to find them there. Um, and if you sort of scout through the recommendations about place of birth, for example, um, it has like little numbers that just take you straight to that. So you can have a look at them yourself, have a look at the evidence and the research available. Like I said, there's still there's still more work to be done. We need lots more considerations about place of birth. We really do. But the evidence is starting to build in those areas. Which is exciting, isn't it? It's really exciting. There is evidence there. Now, I'll be honest, when you were talking about that 30 minutes from rupture to theatre, I was clenching up a little bit, Angie, because as a midwife that works on an acute high-risk unit and having seen more ruptures than I would like to, I'm thinking 30 minutes is a really long time. It doesn't, I know it doesn't feel like it in the, in the grand scheme of labour and birth, but but actually in a rupture situation, 30 minutes is like, minutes are significant, aren't they? Each minute is significant. So 30 to me feels like, a, like a, a really long time. And I would I would be panicked if we had someone having a rupture and I said, we'll take you to theatre in 30 minutes. Um, but but again, that's just, that just, I suppose, comes from my my personal experience. But it's it's really interesting. And as Shay, as more evidence comes out, we'll have we'll have more to say on it, I guess. Absolutely. And there's still some more work to be done on uterine thickness as well. So at the moment, the recommendation is not to do an ultrasound scan for uterus thickness. Okay. Um, but the Canadian guidelines have recently come out and they're finding more and more evidence to do an ultrasound scan because the thicker the uterus at term, the higher the chance of VBAC rate, the lower the chance of uterine rupture. But the evidence isn't there yet. So it's building again in that area, which again could help potentially in the future. Lots more women make their decisions as to what yeah. they want to do. So that kind yeah. of, it makes sense as well, doesn't it? Like a thicker tissue is less likely to to tear, I guess. So that's really yeah. interesting. Lots of interesting stuff. We're going to have to have this chat again in like a few years time when this evidence has started trickling through and see where we're at. So Angie, Summer is being an absolute dream. My goodness, you guys can't <laughs> see her, but she's just she's just being so, so good. Um, but I don't want to hold her up too much longer or hold Angie up getting to bed too much longer with a new baby. So would you mind finishing us off with three top tips for anyone listening who is planning and wanting to optimise a positive VBAC birth? Yeah. So firstly, antenatal education, get yourself armed with lots of antenatal education that you can get so that you can make the decision that is right for you, however you birth and wherever you birth your baby. Um, look at all the evidence, look at the research, discuss it with your birthing partners. Um, the second one is undertake an antenatal individualized care plan. So again, you can plan for each scenario because that is what's going to give you that positive birth experience, whichever way you go, whichever way you decide. 
And the final tip is have your birthing partners on board with whatever you're going to decide and choose wisely. So, you know, consider maybe hiring a doula if that is what is right for you. Um, You know, have your birthing partners advocate for you, you know, undertake things like hypnobirthing, anything along those lines that's going to give them more, lots more tools within their box to be able to help support you in having that empowering birth that you want. Um, And if you can and possibly get continuity of care in there somewhere with midwives, depending on where you are in the world, um, that would be an additional thing because actually that continuity of care has been shown to improve outcomes for women and to have that positive empowering birth experience. But I'm fully aware that the NHS constraints aren't necessarily supporting that right now, but that would help hugely as well. So, you know. We can we can make, wave a magic wand for the sake of a podcast, though. That's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fix, fix the NHS and continuity. But some people are receiving continuity, so it actually might be really helpful for them. Angie, thank you so much. And Summer, thank you so much um, for hopping on and talking about VBAC because it's something I've been getting loads of questions about. So I'm very excited that this will be able to be listened to and that Angie has managed even with a new baby to dig up all of those studies and statistics so a big thank you and thank you so much for your time that's all right thank you very much for having me if you've enjoyed this chat and want to hear more on this topic head over to midwifepip.com where you'll find my accompanying blog post with highlights my thoughts extra information and additional resources and remember Leaving a review on my podcast, if you've enjoyed listening, really does make a huge difference to helping me reach more women with honest, reliable information. So please take a moment to do this, because when women support women, amazing things happen. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.